Well, we're returning back to our study through the book of Acts. Appreciate very much Jeremy uh, preaching these last couple weeks. He did a really good job. I've heard both sermons. Appreciate John leading the worship. It's just been just so encouraging to know we have people who can do, who can do that, do that, do such a good job with it. Um, we're going to returning to returning to the book of Acts today. We're going to be focusing on Acts 21, 1 to 17. Uh, just to remind you, Acts 20 actually marked the close of Paul's third missionary journey. <coughs> In that journey as a whole, he revisited the churches that had been started during the first and second journeys. He also spent up to three years altogether in Ephesus. In that time, not only was the church in Ephesus started, but he also really laid the foundation for the starting of churches all over the province of Asia while he was in Ephesus in his, in his public, uh, public teaching ministry that he had there. And so as Paul was then beginning to make his way back to Jerusalem, he asked the elders of the church in Ephesus to meet him in the coastal town of Miletus. He reminded the elders of how he had ministered to them while he was in Ephesus. All he did, he did as one who was consciously serving the Lord uh, in humble obedience and dependence on him. He declared, he said, the whole counsel of God to them. He shrank back from telling them nothing that was in the scriptures. He knew well that scripture is all scripture is God-breathed and is therefore profitable, profitable for everyone. So he shared it all with them. Paul also tells them he's on his way to Jerusalem and that he wants to be there in time for the Feast of Pentecost. Uh, the Holy Spirit has compelled him to return to Jerusalem. The Spirit has also assured him that bonds and afflictions await him. Paul then exhorts the elders to be on guard for themselves. They needed to be careful about their own walk with the Lord, must not neglect their own relationship with God. And in the context of being on guard for themselves, the elders were also to be on guard for the flock that the Lord had given them. The church belongs to God. It is his church. It is made up of people who he has called to himself from the foundation of the world. He has provided for their salvation through the life, death, and resurrection of his son. The Holy Spirit has applied that purchased salvation to their lives to convict them of sin, of righteousness, of judgment, and enable them to believe in Jesus as their Lord and Savior. The church belongs to God. It is his body. And the Spirit of God has placed elders to be the overseers of those precious people in each of those local churches. And Paul reminds them of that. <clears throat> so through Paul's exhortation, the Lord then uh, exhorts the elders to watch over that flock. <clears throat> Paul is certain that savage wolves are going to be going after the believers in an attempt to draw them away from Christ, to draw them away from the faith. They're going to work to place doubt in their minds about who God really is, about the reliability of the scriptures, about the need for an atoning sacrifice for salvation, about the fact that faith in Christ is the only way that a person can be saved, and just hundreds of other false and destructive truths, or, or not truths, but doctrines that, that would be taught. There are dangers then, there are dangers now. So there is a constant need to be on guard uh, for ourselves and for our faith, just like Paul admonished them to be. After Paul finished that exhortation, they knelt down, they prayed together, there was great sadness, weeping as they realized they were never going to see Paul again. 
So that leads us into then chapter 21. Chapter 21 then begins to narrate Paul's journey back to Jerusalem. So we're going to read verses 1 to 17. When he had parted from them and had set sail, we ran a straight course to Kos, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patera. And having found a ship crossing over to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we came in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we kept sailing to Syria and landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unload its cargo. After looking up the disciples, we stayed there seven days, and they kept telling Paul through the Spirit not to set foot in Jerusalem. When our days there were ended, we left and started on our journey, while they all, with wives and children, escorted us until we were out of the city. After kneeling down on the beach and praying, we said farewell to one another. And then we went on board the ship, and they returned home again. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived in Ptolemais, and after greeting the brethren, we stayed with them for a day. On the next day, we left and came to Caesarea, and entering the house of Philip the evangelist, who was one of the seven, we stayed with him. Now this man had four virgin daughters who were prophetesses. As we were staying there for some days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, This is what the Holy Spirit says. In this way the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When he had heard this, we as well as the local residents began begging him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be bound and even to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we fell silent, remarking, The will of the Lord be done. After these days, we got ready and started on our way to Jerusalem. Some of the disciples from Caesarea also came with us, taking us to Manasseh of Cyprus, a disciple of long standing with whom we were to lodge. After we arrived in Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. There's several things that are especially highlighted in these verses that we want to give some attention to. One is we see a real emphasis, emphasis on the importance of Jerusalem. So we're going to talk about that some. We see an emphasis on Paul connecting with local churches in many of the cities that they were passing through on this way uh, back to Jerusalem. We see an emphasis on the Holy Spirit working through people who had been given the gift of prophecy. And then we see Paul persevering on his journey all the way to Jerusalem because he is fully committed to the Lord Jesus and is confident that the will of the Lord will be done. So the first thing I want to spend some time on this morning is this. Paul being compelled by the Holy Spirit to go to Jerusalem is a reminder of the central importance of that city to the Jewish people and to the Christian church. <clears throat> Luke has already made it clear to us in Acts chapter 20 that Paul was compelled by the Spirit to return to Jerusalem by the time Pentecost was to be observed. That was the reason he asked the Ephesian elders to meet him in Miletus. He knew he didn't have time to actually make the trip to, to, to Ephesus. And Paul told the elders that he was compelled by the Spirit to return to Jerusalem. We're not told why Paul was so focused on returning to Jerusalem at this time. In fact, we, as we saw in the verse that we just read, there were multiple people in multiple churches and multiple cities who tried to get Paul to change his mind, but he wouldn't do it. 
So Paul's purposeful journey to Jerusalem in time for the Feast of Pentecost is really a reminder of what a priority these pilgrimages to the city had been for the Jewish people for centuries. There were seven different feasts that were instituted in the Pentateuch that the Jews were to observe. They were Passover, Unleavened Bread, Feast of First Fruits, the Feast of Weeks, which is also called Pentecost, the Feast of, Ta- of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, and then the Feast of Tabernacles. Um, later, the Feast of Dedication, which is also called Hanukkah, and the Feast of Purim were added. Three of these feasts were considered pilgrimage feasts. So these feasts required a pilgrimage to Jerusalem to celebrate. And those feasts were the Passover, Pentecost, and the Feast of Tabernacles. The Jewish men in particular were required to attend these feasts. And these were just very important times. They were times of remembering. They were times of worship. They were times of giving thanks to God. And it's interesting, in the Psalms, Psalm 120 through 134 are called Songs of Ascent. And these were psalms that were sung as the travelers were ascending to Jerusalem, especially as they were attending these feasts. Let me give you just a sampling of some of the things that they sang in these psalms as they were on their way to Jerusalem for one of these feasts. Uh, Psalm 122, first few verses says, I was glad when they said to me, let's go to the house of the Lord. Our feet are standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem that is built as a city that is compact altogether to which the tribes go up, even the tribes of the Lord, an ordinance of Israel to give thanks to the name of the Lord. Psalm 125, those who trust in the Lord are as Mount Zion, which cannot be moved, but abides forever. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people from this time forth and forever. Psalm 128, It's verse 5 and 6. The Lord bless you from Zion, and may you see the prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life. Indeed, may you see your children's children. Peace be upon Israel. And then Psalm 134 says this. Behold, bless the Lord, all servants of the Lord, who serve by night in the house of the Lord. Lift up your hands in the sanctuary and bless the Lord. May the Lord bless you from Zion, he who made heaven and earth. So you can see just from that, I mean, this was, this was a, these feasts, this pilgrimage even to, the, to Jerusalem were just joyous times of worship and faith-filled prayers that they were praying as they, as, they, as they came. Well, in Paul's case, he's going to Jerusalem not only as a Jewish person, but as one who had believed that Jesus was the promised Messiah. As you remember, it was during Passover that Jesus was betrayed in Jerusalem. He was then given over to the Roman authorities by the Jewish leaders to be crucified in Jerusalem. And then in Jerusalem, Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. It was 50 days after that, after Passover, that the Feast of Pentecost took place. And it was there in Pentecost, of course, that the Holy Spirit was given in fullness of power to the believers. So both Passover and Pentecost took on a much fuller meaning For Christians, after that, for Paul, I'm sure it was still a time of worship and giving thanks to God, but now he was doing that in the time of the Messiah as one who had trusted Jesus as the Messiah. 
But all along the way, Paul is being warned about going to Jerusalem for Pentecost. That's because there were many Jews who had rejected Jesus as the Messiah. There were many who were very upset that Gentiles were being offered salvation apart from keeping the law of Moses. So everyone knew that it could go very badly for Paul if he fell into the wrong hands when he was in Jerusalem. It's sad to see that going to Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost had become a thing of danger for Christians, especially for Paul. But there's something else going on here, too, as we consider the significance of Jerusalem. Jerusalem was also called Zion. That showed up several times in some of the uh, Psalms I was reading for you. Zion was, was used as a type or as a symbol, so to speak, pointing not just to Jerusalem, but pointing ultimately to the, to, to the church as a whole, to the New Testament church. The church, of course, of course, consists of both Jews and Gentiles who have received Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. The church has been baptized in the Holy Spirit, as we saw in Pentecost. The church has been given the commission from our Savior to make disciples of all the nations in the world, beginning with Jerusalem. And the book of Acts has been telling us how that work began in the, in the first century church. We see even in these verses how churches were in existence in many places that Paul had never visited. And we see the affection and connection they felt with Paul, even though many of them had probably never met him. Paul recognized the importance of the church in Jerusalem. He had led the churches that he served in, uh, 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 and, and on his trips to to, uh, to take up an offering for the poor of the church in Jerusalem. And so it was on this trip to Jerusalem that Paul was going to deliver that financial gift in person to the church there. Some have also speculated that maybe Paul was hoping for a message from the apostles that he hoped to see some of them in Jerusalem, a message from them that he could take back to the Gentile churches, a message that would further affirm the gospel legitimacy of these churches, these Gentile churches, in the face of continued questions and accusations from the Jews. From the Jews. So for Paul, it'd be worth risking his life to go to Jerusalem to get this kind of help for the churches that he was working with. So Paul's journey to Jerusalem reminds us of the central importance of that city, not only to the Jewish people, but also to the Christian church. Next, we need to consider that as Paul journeyed to Jerusalem, the work of the Holy Spirit through prophecy was highlighted. The prophets served a foundational purpose to the establishment and growth of the people of God. In the first three verses of Acts 21, uh, Luke gives us an itinerary, really, of the travels from Miletus and toward Jerusalem. They first go to an island of Kos, which is about 40 miles uh, south of Miletus, then to the island of Rhodes. This island, by the way, was famous for what was called the Colossus of Rhodes, which was actually a, a, a grand lighthouse known as one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. They then go to the city of Patara. Then they change ships, and they pass within sight of the island of Cyprus, which is where Barnabas is from. Paul had been there in, in, in his first missionary journey, on the way to the city of Tyre, which was a Phoenician city. And Tyre, they were able to connect with some disciples there and stayed with them for seven days. We are told in verse 4, they kept telling Paul through the Spirit not to set foot in Jerusalem. 
Now, we are not specifically told that these messages were given through prophets, but I think that is understood, especially when compared to what happened later in Caesarea. Now, we also need to keep in mind here that it was the Holy Spirit that had compelled Paul to go to Jerusalem. So what seems to be going on here in Tyre is that those prophets were confirming the revelation of the Spirit for Paul, but were then adding their own conclusion that Paul shouldn't go, because that's what happened in Caesarea. Well, Paul took their words as information. He took their words as a warning, but he did not take it as something forbidding him to go to Jerusalem. He had already been compelled by the Spirit to go to Jerusalem. So as Paul and his team leave Tyre, there's a touching scene of whole families uh, sending him off, kneeling together there in the beach as they prayed, and he left. Paul goes 30 miles south then to Ptolemais, where they make contact again with some believers in that town. And then they go another 30 miles south to Caesarea. We get more detail from the visit to Caesarea than we do from the other town. So look again in verses 8 to 12. It says, On the next day, we left and came to Caesarea, and entering the house of Philip, the evangelist, who was one of the seven, we stayed with him. Now this man had four virgin daughters who were prophetesses. As we were staying there for some days, a prophet named Agabus, Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt, bound his own hands and feet, and said, this is what the Holy Spirit says. In this way, the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we had heard this, we as well as the local residents began begging him not to go up to Jerusalem. So the team, there's, there's obviously people with Paul besides himself, and uh, of course Luke is with them, and there's, uh, there's obviously some others. But the team is staying with Philip. You'll remember Philip as one of the seven who was chosen to serve the Jerusalem church as a, in, in a deacon role back in Acts chapter 6. And then, of course, when persecution broke out and all the Christians, for the most part, had to scatter, Philip went to Samaria and began to preach in Samaria. And that really marked the expansion of the gospel from Judea into Samaria. Many put their faith in Jesus as the Christ. Philip was then led to go to a desert road that he, where he met an Ethiopian eunuch who had been in Jerusalem. He shared with a eunuch who became a believer and was baptized. Philip was then just supernaturally transported and found himself in a town known as Azotas. And he preached through a number of cities until he came to Caesarea, where he obviously settled down and had a family. That was about 20 years before what we see here in Acts 21. By the way, Caesarea, you may remember, is also the place where Cornelius was living when the Lord dramatically saved he and his whole family through the ministry of Peter. So can assume that some of them, maybe all of them still, are a part of this church in Caesarea. Well, the Lord gave Philip four daughters, all of which are unmarried and described as prophetesses. Then the prophet Agabus comes down to Caesarea from Judea. We first saw him in Acts chapter 11. In Acts chapter 11, he prophesied of a famine that was to come. He apparently, Agabus apparently got word that Paul was at Philip's house and came to see him. Well, Agabus then acts out a prophecy for Paul. He takes Paul's belt, uses it to tie up his feet and his hands. This is similar to what 
some of the Old Testament prophecies would do to Old Testament prophets would do to communicate their prophecies. Ezekiel was especially uh, active in doing all kinds of uh, visual things to illustrate the prophecy that God had given him. Well, Agabus does the same thing. And then he announces a message from the Holy Spirit. He says, in this way, the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. And then once again, the believers conclude that Paul should not go to Jerusalem and begin begging him not to go. Well, the work of the Holy Spirit through prophecy is definitely highlighted in these verses. So let's make several observations about the ministry of the prophets. First one is this. God used the prophets to reveal his word to the people, to reveal his word to the people. The prophets, both Old and New Testament, were spokesmen for God. He revealed his word to the prophets, and they delivered that word to the people. The ministry of the prophets were prominent, of course, in the Old Testament. In Deuteronomy 18, Moses spoke of the prophets that God raised up from among their own countrymen to speak accurately the word that God had given them, which was obviously ultimately a, prophet, a prophecy itself pointing to Jesus Christ as the ultimate prophet. Of course, we see writing prophets in the Old Testament like Moses, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, Hosea, Micah, and others. There's also non-writing prophets, Elijah, Elisha, Nathan, Gad, and there was others besides them. So to be a true prophet of God did not require that the prophet write down the prophecies. There are also prophets that the Lord used to reveal his word in the New Testament as well. There were apparently unnamed prophets in Tyre. We are introduced to Agabus, uh, reintroduced, I should say, to Agabus in these verses. And I think we can assume that Philip's daughters had similar prophecies for Paul, uh, informing him, maybe encouraging him, whatever we aren't told what that with actually said while he was in, the, in, in their home. Just like in the Old Testament, none of these were writing prophets. But Luke informs us of what they had to say here in Acts 21. Their ministry was very important in the early church before the New Testament scriptures had been completed. Another thing we can observe here is this. The work of the prophets in the early church were confirmation of what the prophet Joel said about the days of the Messiah. Joel was an Old Testament prophecy, prophet who prophesied of what would happen in the days of the coming of the Messiah. He wrote about the fact that at this time, the Holy Spirit would be poured out in abundance. Well, the giving of the Spirit on the day of Pentecost was the fulfillment of Joel's prophecy. When Peter stood up to preach uh, on that day, on the day of Pentecost in Jerusalem, he quoted from Joel 2, which you can find that from Joel, he quoted from Joel 2, and you can find that in Acts chapter 2, uh, verses 14 to 21. I'm not going to read the whole thing there, but Peter stands up to preach, and he makes it clear. He says, what you're seeing here, this, these, this, this, these, these manifestations of the Spirit, this is what Joel was talking about. This is it. This is what Joel meant. And he goes through, and he quotes that prophecy from Joel. Well, part of what he quoted is this. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Well, 
Philip's daughters are mentioned in Acts 21.9 as an example of the fulfillment of this prophecy. They would have used this gift, really not as public teachers, but in a more private and personal setting, uh, which seems to be in what happened with Paul. The mention of Philip's daughters also speaks of the strength, really, of the community, the church there in Caesarea. Well, then the ministry of Agabus really is a further example of the gift of prophecy in the early church, which would also tie in to the prophecy of Joel. Now, it's also important for us to remember this next truth. God used the work of the apostles and the prophets to provide the foundation with Christ as the cornerstone on which the church could stand and grow. We find this laid out for us in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 to 22. Paul says, So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, and whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. So in these verses, Paul gives three illustrations to describe the church. First, he used the illustration of citizenship. So this reminds us that as believers, we are part of Christ's kingdom citizens of his kingdom. Therefore, we have direct access to him as our king. We belong to Christ, and we are to represent his kingdom as citizens of his kingdom. Second, the church is compared to a family household. This reminds us that that we are the children of God, that we have been born again, regenerated by by the Spirit. We are his children, his family. Third, the church is described as a building, like a holy temple in the Lord. So this reminds us that really we are cemented together in Christ. And just like a builder would take uh, bricks and mortar and things of different shapes, God takes people of various shapes, so to speak, various gifts, various abilities, various testimonies, experiences, and so forth, and molds us and fits us together as a church. And as the master builder, we trust him to build as he sees fit. It's his church. But it's also key to see what the church is built on. It's built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus being the cornerstone. So as the cornerstone, Christ holds together the building and the foundation. Christ is the key there, holding together the building and the foundation. He is the one who gives unity, who gives strength, who gives a real identity to the church. Well, the foundation of the apostles and prophets speaks of the revelation that God has given to us through them. The apostles, of course, are listed first. They are the men that Christ chose to be his disciples. They were trained and sent out by him. Paul was an apostle as well, of course, and he was, uh, he was called later but, uh, but, but these were men who were called out by Christ to be those apostles, trained by Christ. And by the Holy Spirit, Jesus promised them they would, be, they would be enabled to know and communicate the truth. So the Lord directly revealed truth through the apostles, 
They were enabled to personally write and also generally oversee the writing of all the books of the New Testament. So the scripture, therefore, is foundational to the church. Well, the fact that the apostles are listed first makes it clear here that Paul is talking about the New Testament as opposed to the Old. Now, of course, there's prophets in the Old as well. But he's especially focusing on the New here because he mentions the apostles, and there were not apostles related to the Old Testament. So that means the prophets he's referring to are the prophets of the New Testament era. Well, just like in the Old Testament, God revealed truth to these New Testament prophets that they were to communicate to others. Generally speaking, they were not writing prophets. For example, we don't have books in the Bible written by Agabus. We don't have any books of the Bible written by the daughters of Philip. But we're given a record of some of these revelations from God by others. We especially see that the Lord used Luke here really as something of a prophet himself to record this revelation from God in the Gospel of Luke and in the book of Acts. For example, Luke tells us in Acts about how the Spirit revealed to the elders of the Antioch church in chapter 13, I think it was, that Paul and Barnabas were to be set apart for mission work. Well, there's a good chance that this came about as a word of prophecy among the elders. In Acts chapter 8, Luke tells us that the Spirit spoke directly to Philip and told him to go up to that eunuch on the chariot and talk with him. In Acts 15, Luke tells us about how the Spirit directed the Jerusalem council and their decision. This would, be, this would be some prophetic work being done there. And then we see multiple examples here in Acts 21 of how God spoke through the prophets of the New Testament era. I think it's also interesting to note here, and I think it's important to recognize this, we get several hints, really good hints, about how Luke gathered all that information of things that he has written in the book of Acts. First, we, there would be much he could learn from talking with Philip. I think everything he wrote in here in the book of Acts, he got from talking to Philip. He stayed in his house. And then we see in verse 16 of Acts 21 that the disciples of Caesarea arranged for Paul and Luke and the others to stay with Manasin of Cyprus. Manasin is described as a disciple of long standing. This was an old man who had been a Christian, a believer for a long time. He certainly would have been a wealth of information of things that happened in the uh, early days following Pentecost and possibly even before Pentecost. Some have speculated maybe he was one of the 70. We don't know that. But he was a disciple who had been there for a long time. It's amazing all the stuff. You can imagine Luke gleaned from him as they were staying at his house. In verse 18 of chapter 21, Luke and the others are able to meet with James and the other elders of Jerusalem church. They're going to talk with them. He's going to find out all kinds of things from them about what happened in Jerusalem. Well, all of these men and others would have been invaluable sources of information for Luke. And the Lord then used Luke to write down God's revelation of the early days of the church in the book of Acts. It's on this foundation 
of the revelation of God that we have in the New Testament, along with what was previously written in the Old Testament, that the church is able to build and grow. Once the New Testament was completed, the foundational ministry of the apostles and prophets was also completed. We no longer have apostles and prophets who are being given direct revelation from God because the foundation has been completed. You don't keep building on the foundation. The foundation is completed, was finished. What we need now is continued enlightenment and illumination of the scriptures that have been given to us that we can apply those scriptures to our own lives and, and, and within the churches. So the word of God is just such a valuable treasure. It's our foundation. And God used the apostles and the prophets, a number of them mentioned in, in, in these verses. And they're just, they are so fundamental to our faith here in 2022. Now there's one final thing about these from these verses in Acts 21 that I think is really important for us to consider. Paul's response to the concerns of fellow believers reminds us of the importance of being submissive to the will of the Lord. In both Tyre and Caesarea, believers through the Holy Spirit confirmed to Paul that bonds and afflictions awaited him in Jerusalem. And then as believers who loved Paul and understood how valuable he was to the church at large, they pleaded with him not to go to Jerusalem. Certainly, they didn't want to see him suffer. They didn't want to see him executed. And Paul had been so central to the gospel being spread throughout the Roman Empire. I mean, he had ministered at great risk to himself at both, to both Jews and Greeks. He was beginning to write letters to the churches that were being copied and used and distributed widely. How could the church go on without Paul? Paul knew that the Lord was leading him to go to Jerusalem, but he was very sensitive as well to the pleadings of his fellow Christians. They moved him. The Ephesian elders were, aggrie were grieved when they realized Paul was going to Jerusalem and they would probably, most likely, never see him again. The disciples in Tyre, who probably didn't even know Paul personally, were telling him, don't set foot in Jerusalem. Don't do it. Agabus gave a very memorable and moving demonstration in front of, I'm sure all these people were sitting around watching, of what would happen to Paul in Jerusalem. And then those who heard, which included Luke, began to beg with great emotion and plead with Paul, don't go. Don't go to Jerusalem. Well, Paul's response in verses 13 and 14, very important. Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be bound, but even to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we fell silent, remarking, The will of the Lord be done. What a powerful example is this. The will of the Lord be done. Of course, as believers, we would all agree with that statement. But it isn't always that easy. Look at what Matthew Henry said about this statement on your outline. He says, let the will of the Lord be done, for his will is his wisdom. And he does all according to the counsel of it. 
Let him therefore do with us and with ours as seems good in his eyes. The will of God is his wisdom. God decrees all things whatsoever come to pass. He does not make these decrees lightly. God is wise, and there are no gaps at all in what he knows, what he understands. He fully knows the past. He fully understands the present. He fully understands the future. His knowledge is perfect. He is holy, righteous, and just. He is full of mercy and grace. He is independent. He therefore depends on nothing or no one for his existence or for his knowledge. All of these things and more are the essence of who God is. Therefore, everything that he wills to take place is based on perfect, infallible wisdom. There is not a single factor that he does not take into consideration. That should help us. That should help us a lot. But we've got to add this next point. God's holy will is best, but there are often difficulties and sorrowful trials that have to be endured. It was right. It was God's will that Paul make the journey to Jerusalem. But it was also very clear it was going to be a journey that was going to be full of trials. Just even the journey to get there had already been a trial and, 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 and difficult. Paul himself was going to be arrested. He was going to be treated badly. He knew that. He didn't know to what, to what extent, but he knew that. He knew there was the possibility he could lose his life. In spite of that, Paul submitted to the will of God. This also produced great sadness among people who knew him. Many had been personally influenced by his ministry. In fact, their whole life had been transformed as he shared the gospel with them. Others had seen how important he had been to the church and just could not bear to think what it would be like if he was gone. They were filled with sorrow at the thought of what could happen to Paul, saying, so saying the will of the Lord be done does not mean things won't be hard. Oftentimes, they will be very hard. We live in a fallen world. People often make sinful and unwise decisions. We are guilty ourselves of making sinful and unwise decisions. And those decisions not only affect the person making the decision, but have ripple effect on others as well. And we all know that. The reactions of the people in the churches of Ephesus, Tyre, and Caesarea made it hard for Paul to do what the Spirit had led him to do. But he stood firm. He knew that it was God's will and that gave him the confidence he needed to stand firm. No matter how difficult things can be, we've got to regularly rest in faith on the fact that God's will is best. I mean, that's just that's going to be an important part of our prayers. There's all kinds of things that we all have prayer requests that we're praying for about ourselves, about our families, about people we know, church, our nation, so forth recognizing God's will is best has got to be one of the foundational things that we understand and we confess to acknowledge to be true. 
And then we press on in our confidence and our trust in Him as we walk through the difficulties that are involved in the fact that God's will is best. In fact, Jesus gave us a guide to help us as we pray about those things. In the third petition of the Lord's Prayer, He taught us to pray this, Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus says, I want you to pray that, not just say the words. I mean, it's easy to memorize those words, but there's a lot to those words. That's what we're going to talk about here. So look at how the Baptist Catechism describes what is contained in that prayer. We pray that God, by his grace, would make us able and willing to know, obey, and submit to his will in all things, as the angels do in heaven. God will do all his good pleasure. In this prayer, we are asking him to help us know his will when it comes to decisions that we have to make. In other words, we're asking for wisdom. We're asking for wisdom in this prayer. We're also praying that he would grant us the grace to obey his will. I mean, it's so easy to compromise on things that the scripture make very clear to us. There's the influence of people, there's the culture around us, there's our own personal temptations that can make it a challenge to stand firm on the things that we know are morally right according to the Word of God. We know things that are morally the will of God. We need God's grace to enable us to obey His will. We are praying that we would submit to His will. In his wisdom, God will often bring things into our lives that are going to be difficult, that are going to be painful. Sometimes these trials are uh, fairly brief. Sometimes they can last your whole lifetime. When hard things happen, sometimes I mean, some people are strongly tempted to get mad at God and turn away from him. Jesus is teaching us to submit to his will even when it's hard, even when we don't fully understand what is going on or why it's going on. And the angels in heaven, of course, are our example of what it is to know, obey, and submit to God's will in all things. So we pray that his will be done on earth like the angels do in heaven. One last thing we learn from Paul. Believers are committed to living and dying for the glory of the name of the Lord Jesus. This is what Paul told those who were pleading with him not to go to Jerusalem. He says, I'm ready not only to be bound, but even to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. So with these words, really, Paul was putting the whole thing in its right context. Jesus Christ was his Lord. No matter what the circumstances were, Jesus was his Lord. No matter what pressure he was under, Jesus was his Lord. No matter what others might do to dissuade him, Jesus was his Lord. That is the bottom line for every Christian. In every circumstance of life, we live as one who is the servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul was also making it clear that his first desire was to please Jesus Christ. He wanted to hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. 
He was doing what he was doing to please his Lord. Paul was also making it clear that he understood he was living as a citizen of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Now, he was a citizen of Rome. He was a Jewish person as well. But he's making it clear that he understood above all else, he was a citizen of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Jesus had a work and has a work that he's doing in this world. He reigns from the right hand of the Father as the exalted Savior and the resurrected Lord. That is the context to everything that is going on in our life and in his church. We are called to do all things for the sake of his name because we are part of his kingdom. Finally, Paul, was when he said this, he was a taking a stand for the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is salvation in no other name, only the name of Jesus. Paul would never forget how Jesus intervened in his life as one who had been sinfully persecuting the church of Christ. He would never forget that. It was Jesus who died on the cross as a substitute for sinners, including Paul's sin. It was Jesus who was raised from the dead to fully purchase the salvation of all believers, including Paul's salvation. It was Jesus who was with him in all that he did. It was Jesus who Paul continued to proclaim as the hope for sinners. So, of course, he was willing to die for the name of the Lord Jesus. And as a result, both Paul and the believers who were present gave us an example when they said, the will of the Lord be done. Lord, we want to thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the things that you reveal to us through them. I thank you for these historical books especially. We get to see things illustrated through the lives of people, how you work in people's life as they, as they, as they interact with and can engage with each other and engage with the circumstances, the situations of life, and especially as Christians who are trying to walk through difficulties and hard things, hard callings. So, Lord, I thank you for the example that we see here of the, of, of the men and, and, and the young women who are, who are uh, uh, written out here for us so we can read what, what they said and what they did. Lord, I ask that you would help us. Every one of us have situations that are hard. Every one of us have things that we would look at and say, it's hard to look at that and say, the will of the Lord be done. Lord, Help us to trust you. Yes, we're going to continue to pray. Yes, we're going to continue to honor you and obey you and do what needs to be done in whatever the circumstance might be that we're thinking of. But help us also to be confident that you are in absolute control of those circumstances. We need to know that. We need that confidence. No, we don't understand everything and why it's happening and, and even how it's going to end up. We don't know. We have hopes. And we have prayers, and we continue to pray those way, in those ways. But, Lord, help us as we pray to be content. To be content with your will. Oh, we all need that. We need that so much. If you're one who has never put your faith in Jesus Christ, I mean, Paul's the ultimate example. He realized that he was going the opposite direction. He was a very religious man, obviously, but he was living in sin. Against, against the Lord. We all 
have, are living in sin and have lived in sin against our Lord. But if you're one who has never put your faith in Christ, I would invite you to receive the Savior that Paul says, I'm committing my whole life to him. A prayer like this would be a way to start. Lord, I realize that I'm a sinner. I realize I have fallen so short of what you have called me to be and to do. But I thank you that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. I thank you for the price he paid on the cross. And I want to receive him as my Savior and as my resurrected Lord. If you want to talk in more detail about that commitment to Christ, you can make a note in your tear-off or those who are watching online can reach out to us through the website. It is in the name of Christ.